You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking money, money, money. It's the theme of our current print issue. Consumerism is complicated. On the one hand, buying stuff can feel empowering. I remember the first time as a teenager that I got a paycheck and was able to buy something with my own hard-earned money. I think I probably spent most of my first paycheck on tacos, but it didn't matter. There was that rush, that thrill of, this is mine, all mine. But why does that feel so good? And what unseen forces push us to buy one thing instead of another? That's what Bitch Media creative and editorial director Andy Zeisler explores in her essay, Empowertize Me, which looks at the history of advertisers co-opting feminist language to sell stuff like cigarettes. A longer version of this essay is featured in the money issue of Bitch Magazine, as well as in Andy's brand new book, We Were Feminists Once. In 1998, an advertisement for a first USA anniversary series Platinum MasterCard read like this. In a village chapel in upstate New York 150 years ago, the initial bold steps in a revolution that would ensure women the right to vote were taken at the first women's rights celebration at Seneca Falls. And now you can celebrate the anniversary of this milestone in women's rights and the strength and conviction the courageous suffragettes involved whenever you use your first USA anniversary series Platinum MasterCard. Celebrate women's rights. Apply today. This wasn't the first time that women's liberation had been connected to our power to spend money we didn't have, and it wouldn't be the last. But first USA's linking of women's enfranchisement and their freedom to go into debt in the form of a 1998 credit card come on, was an almost admirably shameless co-optation of the language of feminism in the service of capitalism. The bank even promised to send a free women's almanac to cardholders after their first purchase. It's not a stretch to say that modern feminism was co-opted by the market almost as soon as it was born. The white, middle-class new woman of the late 19th and early 20th century, who had leisure enough to chafe against the Victorian ideal of the angel in the house, was an early target of advertisers seeking a fresh demographic. Those advertisers constructed ideal female consumers as mothers and wives who were full of unmet potential, longing to buck convention and participate in public life. For this woman, consumer goods were positioned as one route to autonomy. Shredded wheat wasn't just a cereal product. It was her declaration of independence. Cigarettes were one of the first products that allowed the commercial realm to align itself in market potential, if not political commitment, to emerging women's movements. Smoking was considered such an unseemly activity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that women were often explicitly prohibited from doing so in public. So it made sense that the American tobacco company saw capturing this emerging market as akin to opening a gold mine right in our front yard. The company deftly exploited the first wave of feminism when it hired Edward Bernays, now considered the father of public relations, to craft campaigns that would get more women smoking and buying cigarettes. Bernays initially appealed to women's vanity by proposing cigarettes as slimming aids. Reach for a lucky instead of a sweet, urge print advertisements. But his hunch was that appealing to their growing sense of autonomy might be the real mover of product. In 1929, Bernays and the American Tobacco Company orchestrated a walk for equality down New York's Fifth Avenue, 
hiring female participants to hold aloft lucky strikes as torches of freedom, while encouraging bystanders to fight another sex taboo by joining them in inhaling the heady smoke of gender equality. In an early example of contrived media virality, the photos of the march caused a national sensation and, as expected, helped nudge the percentage of female cigarette buyers up from 5% in 1923 to 12% post-march. Four decades later, Virginia Slims, the first cigarette explicitly marketed to young professional women, furthered Lucky Strike's legacy by trading on the idea that smoking was a pivotal site of liberation. The famous slogan, you've come a long way, baby, suggested that being able to inhale that formerly masculine smoke was liberation itself, rather than a byproduct of it. You've come a long way, baby. Now there's a slim cigarette for women only. New Virginia Slims. As the first cigarette that used women's images to appeal to women as customers, Virginia Slims was an unqualified success for parent company Philip Morris in the first two decades of its existence. By the 1980s, its market share had grown from 0.24% to 3.16%. As the second wave of the women's movement gained momentum and media notice, the opportunities to market products using aggrandizing sales pitches grew. Advertisers were careful not to explicitly name feminism or the current women's liberation movement. The whole point was to capture potential customers who believed enough in the concept to want to support companies that referenced it, but not enough to shun what feminists saw as tools of sexual objectification, including foundation garments, douches, and more. Could this cynical approach be enough to sell Massengill feminine hygiene aerosol douche by using the tagline Freedom Spray? Apparently it could. No more vinegar and water douches for me. They're such a bother. Jane, look. Massengill has a new vinegar and water disposable douche. It's convenient. No artificial anything? Just vinegar and water? The ingredients many doctors recommend. But this is pre-mixed, pre-measured, sanitary. No more bother. Look how cleverly it's designed. Only Massengill has this special design. The vinegar and water disposable from Massengill. It's specially designed. The business of marketing and selling to women literally depends on creating and then addressing female insecurity. And part of the revelatory potential of women's lib involved rejecting the marketplace's sweet-talking promises about life-changing face creams and shampoos, not to mention the entire premise of women as decorative objects. There was good reason for industries that sustained themselves on the self-hatred of women to dread the potential reach of feminist movements. Co-opting the language of liberation to sell their products allowed them to have it both ways, celebrating the spirit of the movement while fostering a new set of insecurities, natural-look cosmetics, anyone? And new aspirational archetypes. Is she calling my douche outdated? Face it, it's an antique. Massengill just came out with a brand new cleansing design. So? I used it after my period. That's the test. And? You feel a lot fresher. New Massengill, because it's your body, that's why. Charlie, Revlon's perfume for the new woman that launched in 1973, was the first American fragrance to become a blockbuster, in part because it was Revlon's first to target women under 35. Charlie's iconic ad was a major part of its appeal. In it, model Shelley Hack jumps out of a Rolls Royce and strides confidently down the streets of New York City in a kicky pantsuit, embodying all the freedom and confidence of the women's movement with none of the baggy clothes or scowling. 
The accompanying jingle assured potential buyers that this was the fun kind of liberation. There's a fragrance that's here today, and they call it Charlie. A different fragrance that thinks your way, yeah, they call it Charlie. Kinda young. The Charlie Girl didn't so much reflect the new vision of young, liberated white femininity as it did present it as a superior alternative to actual feminist activism. In her 2013 book, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection. Barnard College president and self-described former reluctant feminist Deborah Spar testifies to the power of Charlie's decontextualized liberation. Feminists were loud and pushy, strident and unfeminine, she wrote. Charlie, on the other hand, was gorgeous, ladylike and successful, a working woman and a mom. Who needed feminism if you could have Charlie? For women like Spar, Hack's embodiment of liberation was much more alluring than the real-life agitators who made her possible. And that attitude, goosed by the product and embraced by its consumers, helped lay the groundwork for today's marketplace feminism, in which image is removed from theory and the fun kind of liberation is the most valuable. The history of drawing on feminist language and theory to sell products has been driven by the idea that female consumers are empowered by their personal consumer choices. Indeed, the choice, rather than being a means to an end, is the end itself. The idea that it matters less what you choose than that you have the right to choose is the crux of choice feminism, whose rise coincided with the rapid, near overwhelming expansion of consumer choice that began in the 1980s. Consumption, always associated with status, became elevated as a measure of liberation and swelled with the self-obsession of the privileged but insecure. As neoliberal greed is good, if I have an umbrella it must not be raining rhetoric became the common tongue of the overclass, luxury beauty products, designer labels, and exercise regimens like buns of steel became liberatory achievements rather than mere consumer goods. The representations of choice in a time of tacit post-feminism translated neatly into what could be called empowertizing, an advertising tactic of lightly invoking feminism in acts of exclusively independent consuming. Empowertizing builds on the idea that any choice is a feminist choice if a self-labeled feminist deems it so, but takes it a little bit further to suggest that being female is in itself a constant source of empowerment. The ego, already so key to effective advertising, is indispensable to empowertizing, with its emphasis on the personal cell that takes the focus off objective value and places it firmly within the buyer's sense of individual mythology. Ads that portrayed women as constantly fiending for chocolate, for instance, were part of the monetization of women's lib in the 1960s and 70s. The new, independent woman, ads implied, could get almost everything she needed from chocolate. But both sexual double standards and the belief that women should remain restrained in all appetites have held fast. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, the empowertizing of chocolate hinged on both transgression, portraying both chocolate and its female eaters as sinful and decadent, as well as absolution. Only a chocolate this pure can be this silky and make you savor Pure silk chocolate.
These messages are one part of the larger picture of female consumers encouraged to think of consumption as striking a blow for women's equality rather than just, you know, eating some chocolate. Advertising's pitch to feminists has changed over time. From liberated versions of feminine standbys, the personal douche, the push-up bra, the low-calorie frozen food, to the liberation inherent in consumer choice itself. But here's the thing we all know about advertising to women. The products aim their way, from household cleaners to cosmetics to personal care products, are pitched to solve a problem that in many cases the consumer might not ever know she had until she was alerted to and or shamed for it. What's that, Dove? My armpits are supposed to be sexier? What recent commercials for the likes of Pantene, Always, and Verizon announce is that finally, it seemed possible for the ad industry to reach women without making them feel totally awful about themselves. That's right. After decades of women's movements, that was advertising's big breakthrough. Don't make women feel like shit, and they're more likely to buy your product. That was Andy Zeisler reading her essay, Empowertize Me. See the full version of that essay in the Money issue of Bitch Magazine and in Andy's new book, We Were Feminists Once. 